It's certainly a delight of high order that we each have this evening to come together like this, to have been blessed with the day that the Lord has given us, and to have the opportunity as the shades of evening will shortly gather about us to turn our attention to the things stored within the wonderful pages of God's Word and to use that as we learn of it, to implement it in our life, and to live ever closer to the way that the Lord would have us to abide day by day. Wasn't it true in the 73rd Psalm that many questions in life David himself had to deal with, and sometimes you and I too face matters that we may not have all the answers that we wish we had. May our approach be much as David's was, for in the 73rd chapter, beginning in verse 14, he said, When I went into the house of the Lord, then I understood. We do greatly keep ourselves from the greatness of what God would have us to know when we fail to assemble at the times that we should, for therein we have so much strength and encouragement available to us. Tonight we turn our attention again to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. As we do that, we'll draw to a close this series of lessons on that work. For as we've noted time and again, it's that same book that our Bible bowlers are continuing to study in preparation for the activities of next Saturday morning. Let's continue to encourage them and wish for them the best in their success. And most importantly, to encourage them and they've learned something about the Word of God. Nothing greater could have been accomplished, in fact, could it be said than that. You notice on that opening introductory slide to our study tonight. I thought it wise to simply recall the three high points of the lesson last week, for they will lead us somewhat interestingly into the lesson this evening. We saw in chapters 19 through 21 of this book of 2 Samuel some interesting conclusions and powerful realities in the life of David. First, Absalom now being dead, David returned successfully to Jerusalem. He again took the position as king and in the course of that action, though, we rather quickly saw that chapter 20 brought about another revolt. A gentleman named Sheba had the audacity to encourage Israel to say that they had no inheritance in David. That revolt was short-lived, for David and his men dealt with it rather quickly. And in chapter 21, we noticed a famine that had come upon the land due to Saul's mistreatment of and the breaking of the agreement he had made with the Gibeonites. Ultimately, that brought about a very great change in the matter of Saul's family, didn't it? When we come to chapter 22, which is where we shall begin our study tonight, we come again near, the very, the, near very much the close of David's reign. He was laid in his kingship by this time. And in fact, in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, his death will even be recorded. This, it would seem, is very near the close of David's life. As we see, though, the interesting set of scenes in this chapter and the two that follow, we can be, in fact, reminded of some great things that can aid us in our sojourn faithfully with the Lord. Let's return to chapter 22 and lay some emphasis upon that chapter. It is, by way of number of verses, the lengthiest chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. Though it may be the lengthiest, some interesting things can be said about it, and we will extract a few powerful ideas that I'm sure will be beautifully beneficial even to each of us. As noted at the very outset of that slide, this particular chapter, which is a very unusual thing to be able to say about it, occurs almost verbatim in one other place in the Word of God. Now, it's true that doesn't happen very often that the Scriptures contain two chapters that are practically the same, but this is one of those very few instances where, that has, where, where it does happen. 
The 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel is virtually word for word identical to the 18th Psalm. So if you're ever having an opportunity to compare them directly, you'll find that the same author with virtually the same words in the same order will in fact present the thoughts and ideas of it. As we look at this particular chapter, would you at least in passing consider some of the things that we might say about David's life? By this point in his rather aged existence in the flesh, David had experienced many things in life. There had been many good times. The wonderful successes and victories that he had enjoyed by the powerful hand of the great God of heaven. But by the same token, there were some very serious misgivings. No doubt David had many regrets, such as the adultery he had committed with Bathsheba and the murder he had committed with regard to Uriah. No doubt he could also question some of the other decisions that he had made and the ramifications it had had for his family, such as what Amnon had done to Tamar and what Absalom had done in revenge to Amnon. With all of that said, though, having come to the end of a life, perhaps near to it, and with a bit of hindsight, he invests this beautiful chapter in praising and exalting and adoring the God of heaven who had survived him to this point, brought him to this position in life, and allowed him to stand when at times it appeared so many enemies surrounded him. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe the walls and the enclosures of life were closing in on you so feverishly and you didn't know where to turn. David knew where to turn. Through it all, he could see the beautiful clouds of a God of heaven that was there to sustain, to support, to maintain, and to give him the strength that he needed to go onward. I would invite you to read with me in verses 2 through 4 some of the opening verses to that chapter and listen to the very words of David. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. We'll merely pause there to notice that upon the reading of the totality of that chapter, many descriptive words are used by David to refer to God. Rock, Savior, refuge, tower, horn, and on and on the list goes. There is no question the very one to whom David gave the absolute credence of how it was he was able to advance to this point in his life. After all, there was a time when the most powerful position in all of Israel wanted him dead. Saul had tried for years to kill David, but he had been unsuccessful. How so? The Lord sustained me. David could make that, that acknowledgement. He could make that statement. If you'll notice some of the other things to be seen in that chapter in a very brief way, after exalting and praising the name of God, you might notice interestingly with me, specifically beginning in verse 7 and verse 18, we see the statement therein easily made where God heard David's prayer and he answered it. In fact, verse 18 says, He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. David knew all the well that by his own capabilities he was unable to have defeated the enemies that were ultimately defeated. God did it. 
Have you been in a position to where in hindsight you were able to, in fact, overcome things that by nature were stronger than you? Wasn't there a God sustaining, holding your hand, leading you and providing you with the necessary strength to overcome? David admitted as such in his life. In verses 21 and following, he stated the Lord had rewarded him. Might we note today, all of us can so easily claim marvelous blessings from God. A land that enjoys liberty and freedom, the capability to meet whenever we wish, marvelous physical possessions and blessings, all from the hand of a loving and majestic God. Wasn't it James who later would say in James 1.17 that in fact the God is not one given to variableness or shadow of turning, but rather every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. May we never forget that thought. May we never overlook or take it for granted. For God has been so good to all of us. But this chapter goes on to say some other things as well. Noting also these things are lessons that it would seem that you and I can take rather directly from the context of this chapter. Though more could be said, may I submit these three for your consideration. Back to verse number 4. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. From time to time, you may hear individuals raise a question like this. Why should I worship God? Doesn't it, in fact, speak very little of Him if He demands and commands me to worship Him? After all, does that not, in fact, present Him to be a rather lowly or prideful or arrogant kind of thing that He demands that I give my total attention to Him and no other? That kind of question is very short-sighted. For after all, why don't we ponder a moment the very one who is commanded such. He is worthy to be praised. It is not as though a thinking or logical person should have any question as to the thought that that ought to be done. He is worthy of all adoration. Think how often the Bible describes him in ways that may to you and me seem beyond our full capability to fathom. Psalm 147 verse 5 his understanding is infinite. That means it has no bound. What you and I understand is nothing compared to Him. Is it not said in Isaiah 55 that His thoughts and ways are far higher than mine and yours? Or look at other texts that help us to remember. Daniel 4.25, for example. Is it there not said that God ruleth in the kingdoms of men? We live in a world now that's quickly approaching a population of 7 billion. That's billion with a B. Who is it that is in control of all of it? God is. God rules in the kingdoms of men. We would be in a hopeless circumstance if it were left to the human family. For it's still true, according to Jeremiah 10, 23, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Simply and plainly put by the prophet Jeremiah, wasn't it? Later in Proverbs 20, verse 24, a very similar statement is again made that helps us remember that God is the one who has the answers and He is the one that is in control. David seemed to understand that well and quickly acclaimed God is worthy to be praised. But that's not the only lesson from this chapter. Another that I would submit to you David, again in verse 18, could say that God had delivered him from his enemies. You and I also, perhaps not in the physical way that David was, 
But nonetheless, it is true, we still face an enemy. And oh, how powerful. In fact, far more powerful than any of the enemies David faced in the flesh. For you and I face that very adversary who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, verse 8 of 1 Peter 5. Again, you and I can't possibly defeat him on our own. Is he defeatable though? Is it such that God has made a way of defeat for him and when you and I will make usage of that which he avails us, then we can appreciate victory over this great one. I've listed a text that I hope we will not soon forget. That text in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. I recognize that when we each face temptations, there are times they seem daunting. There are times they seem, in fact, almost impossible for us to make a way around. But we are promised that the following thing is true. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Thus, may you and I ever recollect and keep in mind that when temptations come our way, and they certainly shall, May we never forget, there is guaranteed to be a way of escape. David had felt the deliverance of God working on his behalf. May you and I feel the same. For when we see the way of escape, God has made it. And may we be wise enough to see it and to pursue it. But perhaps also a third lesson. The trusting in God. Oh, it's true that when David committed adultery and when he committed murder, and a time or two else when he slept... Those were weak times in his life, but to his credit, he returned to the side of God. May we also recognize the need and the necessity to have a lifestyle of trusting in him. That's more than just a Sunday and a Wednesday. That's seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There can be no lapses. We need to have a mentality, and we need to have a lifestyle whereby we trust in him. Wasn't it the wise man Solomon who said in Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 3, continuing through verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thy ways. Acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. That's a promise of Scripture, isn't it? In the New Testament also, we're admonished to place our trust in the hands of the one who can well deal with it. It is no wonder that some of the verses I've listed in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, for example, even the ancient prophet Habakkuk could also rely upon the same trust and admonish it of others. That particular text in many ways is so challenging because in it is in some ways a tragedy. If I may but paraphrase, Habakkuk made the statement, if I proceed to the pantry and find it empty, if I proceed out to the barn and the stalls have nothing in them, if I proceed to the garden and the locusts have eaten everything there, Still will I trust in the Lord. It takes confidence and trust to trust in Him even when times appear rough and bad, but yet as those that trust in Him are acclaimed to, we should have that kind of mindset, shouldn't we? It might well be noted that in the closing of chapter 22, we are prepared for the last two chapters of this noble book. And so it is to chapter 23 we shall go. And in that chapter... Consider with me this aspect of things. It opens in truly a breathtaking fashion. I would invite you to read with me 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2. Now these be the last words of David, 
David, the son of Jesse, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. What a beautiful description of this individual, namely David. The one who was described as the sweet psalmist, that is, the sweet singer of Israel. He was a talented musician after all, wasn't he? He could play the harp and do so rather well, 1 Samuel 16. But also it says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. David was hand-selected by God to be the second king of Israel after Saul had displeased him by disobeying in 1 Samuel 15, God had in fact told Samuel to anoint the one, the son of Jesse, that youngest son named David. And in that particular activity, he became the anointed, the one who was able to sit on the throne of Israel. That only helps us see, though, that which comes next. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David was one of the few individuals in all of history who could make that statement. One who could say, God's Spirit has verbally spoken by and through me. Today, you and I have the blessed privilege of this book. And when we quote or use the words of it, God's Spirit is speaking through us. But there is the intermediate nature of this book. God doesn't come to me in a dream and speak, for example. He has not especially given to me any other word than what He has given to you. In that sense, you and I can never be like David. But isn't it interesting in a moment some other conclusions from that text that you and I shall be able to reach? Notice also in this same chapter, verses 3 through 7, David again could make a great statement of the thanksgiving he felt for the blessing that God had heaped upon him. But in the course of that statement, he makes a rather innocent-sounding affirmation. I would ask you to note it with me in verse number 5. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Isn't it amazing? David made reliance upon the sureness of God's covenant. It is to be noted that David, approaching the end again of his days in the flesh, could rest with confidence and reliance upon the certainty of God's promise to him. No wonder he could feel a sense of happiness and a sense of contentment and a sense of looking forward to all the blessings that lay ahead for him. Beginning in verse number 8, we have a listing of David's mighty men. In the very last verse of the chapter, we find the total number to be 37. Many of the names are unfamiliar to us. Some we do see elsewhere in the book of 2 Samuel. It's interesting as we begin to look at some of those names in the catalog given. There were three that stood in height apparently above the others. We find in that listing Adeno the first, following him Eleazar, and finally Shammah. Those three were cataloged as the greatest of David's mighty men. Below them was a second tier. We find in that group Abishai and Benaiah. Following that, a group of others that totaled again 37. Looking through that list, we are quickly reminded, though, of the greatness of David's reign. And these individuals who stood so steadfastly by his side and defended the kingdom of Israel and even its king. 
I would ask you to notice, interestingly, two lessons to be drawn, it would seem, so easily from that chapter. The first lesson, the very text we read a moment ago. It's at this point I would revisit it with you. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. May we appreciate that when David said, His word was in my tongue, that has a very powerful connotation of reminding us that not only did God give to David directly the intents and thoughts that he wished him to have, he gave him verbally and exactly the words in which those thoughts were expressed. Now, admittedly, those are two different things, but it's critical. For might we ask this question? If God merely had given David the thoughts or the main ideas, but David had used his own words to express them, would we have the Word of God? We would not. We would have the words of David expressing the thoughts of God, and that's two different things. This book that you and I have in possession is absolutely the Word, W-O-R-D, of God. It must never be viewed any other way. And isn't it true that both Old and New Testament writers assert that fact for us? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, Paul? That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That text from the closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3 helps also bring to our conception the following idea. This book is profitable for what? For doctrine. When we wish to know what God wishes us to know, this is where it must be found. Second, it's profitable not only for doctrine but for reproof. When you and I look in the mirror and find ourselves in need of correction, this is where the correction should be found ultimately. For is it not still true that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Romans 10, 17. Notice, not only reproof, but correction. When that reproof has led to the point that things in life need to be changed. Habits that I've developed are not good or wholesome. They're perhaps unsound in one way or another. This book shows me what corrections need to be made. It's still a beautiful thing to see that this is the perfect law of liberty, James 1.25. And when we look into it, it'll show us when there's something improper about our character when there's something unwholesome or unsound about things we've done or said. David said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. May we thus appreciate the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Those two words just mean this. Verbal means this is His word absolutely and identically. Plenary means it's complete. There's no parts missing. No appendices will ever be needed. Perhaps that leads us to yet a second lesson, also to be seen in this chapter. Isn't it rather amazing in the character of what occurs at one juncture in this chapter? Those three mighty men that I mentioned a moment ago, Eleazar, Shammah, and Adino, there was a time when they, in the interest of doing that which David requested, jeoparded their own life to obtain for him a drink of water from the well outside Bethlehem. When they brought the water back to him, David poured it on the ground, considering himself unworthy to have drunk that which they jeoparded their lives to obtain. Doesn't that help to teach us at least a bit about how awful selfishness is? 
Here David, in fact, they risked their lives to do something kind and nice for him. David understood that and did not take advantage of them. Have you known individuals who were far less noble than that? They'd take everything the person was willing to offer and then some because they wanted what was best for them. It's somewhat a sad thing to have to deal with those like that, especially when we remember so many passages that urge the following. Look upon others better than yourself, Philippians 2 verse 3. Or that famous text of Romans 12 verses 3 and 4, where we're to admonish and esteem others more nobly and higher even than ourselves. When we do that, we will understand a wholesome and a sense of community, especially in the church, that shall bring great glory to the God of heaven. David, it seemed, appreciated that. He was well aware of what they had done for him. May we take to heart the kind things others not only are willing, but in fact do for you and me. But with those thoughts, the 23rd chapter closes and we come to the closing chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. In the 24th chapter of this book, we are also able to appreciate and we're able to see a final chapter in the life of David. This final chapter, to some extent, isn't pretty, but it does end in a good way. Let's at least expose some of the highlights of it and come to see in the following set of ideas that which happens. David made a decision to number the fighting men of Israel. That is to say, to take a census of how many men he could garner for an army now, David, in the decision to take that, had a rather evil mindset about him. His pridefulness and arrogance was not good. He was wishing to rely upon the numbers of that army rather than the God of heaven who he ought to have known would provide the victory as long as Israel would be faithful to him. And therein lay the problem. He was turning his attention and reliance not upon God but upon an army. With that in mind, being the king of the land, Joab, in fact, did that which David requested. He took a census of the people, and he brought back the answer. It took over nine months to bring back the answer. Joab, it seemed, took his sweet time in garnering the number. But when he returned, he said, There's 800,000 to be numbered amongst Israel, 500,000 to be numbered amongst Judah. No doubt a vast army. In fact, a million three hundred thousand fighting individuals. But David came to his senses. Would you note with me a powerful statement of verse number 10? David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. It takes a man that's rather big to admit when he's made a mistake. Quite often, we can well appreciate some, even when wrong, will never admit it. They will cover it, hide it, conceal it, never admit it. David was honest enough to say, God, I've sinned and I've played the fool. I've done foolishly. And he begged God's forgiveness. That's one of the first things we can appreciate about this man who at one time was described as a man after God's own heart. Are you and I big enough to admit when we've made a mistake? Are we that individual who can go to a brother and say, I was wrong. I apologize. Would you forgive me? We ought to be honest enough one with another to do that. 
We ought to have a desire to be right with our maker and thus have an interest to cast all pride aside and humbly beg a man's forgiveness when we've done that which we ought not to have done. David was big enough to do that and he was the king. If ever a person ought to have tried to hide or conceal it or make an excuse for it, you might think David did, but he very quickly said, I was wrong, and he begged God's forgiveness. In the aftermath, though, we notice that just because that he begged God's forgiveness, that didn't mean there was no punishment. In fact, God sent the prophet Gad to come before David, and he had a message that wasn't pleasing at all. In fact, through Gad, God said to David, you choose one of three things that I'm going to do to you and to Israel. Notice if you'd like to read them in verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. Gad needed an answer so that he could tell God, David, what's your decision? Would you prefer seven years famine? Would you prefer to flee three months before your enemies? Or would you prefer three days of plague or pestilence? David, it seems, didn't have to think very long, for he reasoned as follows. Seven years of famine would bring great difficulty not only to him, but the land as a whole. And furthermore, it would mean he would be at the mercy of the elements. Secondly, he thought about the character of fleeing before his enemies. There, his enemies would be in charge, and he didn't like the thought of that either. And so David decided, I'll take the three days pestilence, for at least there I might obtain mercy from God, for he will be in control of that plague or pestilence. Notice in verse number 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even unto the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba, Seventy thousand men. Due to David's sin of numbering Israel, pestilence and his choice was brought upon the land and seventy thousand men died. Can we not at least in a heartbeat see the consequences that our sins can bring? In fact, I've listed some thoughts in a moment that we shall revisit. But briefly, in concluding the chapter... The destroying angel was seen by David as it stood not far from Jerusalem. In fact, it was at the threshing floor of Aruna. When David saw it, he begged God for mercy and God heard his prayer. God stopped the destroying angel before he could destroy Jerusalem. On that occasion, though, God did have one more message for David through Gad. You build an altar and offer sacrifice. On that occasion... Though Aruna was willing to give him the oxen and the wood needed to offer the sacrifice, David made a monumental utterance in verse 24. I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. David desired and required to purchase it, and that he did. We noted in a lesson not long back about cheap religions worth nothing. If your religion doesn't cost you something, if it doesn't demand things of you, it's worthless. Jesus demands everything of us. All of our life must be given over to Him. For you see, if there's any competition on the throne of our heart to Him, then He's not the King. Something else is. He demands total, absolute allegiance to Him. In fact, He said in Matthew 6, 33, 
the powerful utterance, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Are we seeking Him first? Maybe these lessons as we close the chapter and close our study will be worth our benefit. The sin of reliance upon self. That was the whole problem with David's numbering of Israel. There's no particular sin in numbering a people. David's error was he placed his reliance and confidence in that number rather than in God. And Joab tried to tell him so, but David would not hearken. And so upon that numbering, we also learn the terribleness of reliance upon ourselves. We make a woeful mistake. When we try to meander our way through life without the friendly, powerful leading of the God of heaven. In fact, even our Savior set before us that example, didn't he? Here was the Son of God himself. And yet how often did he pray? How often did he, in fact, avail himself of the quietness and power that God made available to him? May you and I appreciate the same and strive to not rely upon self. But when decisions are to be made, I ask, what would God have me to do? In what way can I serve the Lord by this decision? Will this aid me to be a better father and husband, a better individual in the service to the church? Major decisions can maybe well be answered when we approach them in a way much like that. Some other passages that perhaps bring that to mind. Jesus, in John the 15th chapter, on the night prior to his crucifixion, he said, Without me, ye can do nothing. You and I should remember that if we are to bear fruit for him, we must be attached to the vine. Remember, he said, I'm the vine. You are the branches, John 15, verses 1 to 8. When we, you and I choose to go our own way, we sever ourselves from the vine. He's no longer leading us. He's no longer providing the necessary maintenance and sustenance of life. But maybe a second lesson, the understanding that the decisions that I make, when they are sinful decisions, may not only have ramifications or consequences for me, they may have consequences for somebody else. That's especially true in the family, isn't it? Any person who is a parent and has had a child make some unfortunate and unwise decisions knows all about that. Many a sleepless night may have been spent wondering, what is she doing? What's he doing? Are they behaving themselves in a way that would be appropriate to upholding the family name? You see, those kind of decisions can impact not only you, but many others who care very much for you. Many others who love you dearly. In fact, I've listed a passage from Proverbs 22, verse 1, we should quickly remember. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than wisdom and honor, more than silver and gold. May we appreciate that the things upheld in the Scriptures are worth more than life itself, for they will dictate a home in heaven or an eternity in hell. And that decision rests with you and me. God will open the book and judge us by its contents. Well, how will my life measure up to it and how will yours? May we understand then that when we make decisions, it can be beautiful blessings to others or it may, in fact, bring harm and catastrophe to them. Maybe one final lesson. Forgiveness requires offering. When God heard David's prayer and did stop that destroying angel, there was a necessity of an offering. Oh, how boundless it is for us to think that to today nothing has changed, but in regard to the offering, 
It is a beautiful stroke of genius that that offering has already been made. God made it for us through the activity of His Son. When I sin, it's not as though I have to go kill a cow or a turtle dove or something that I have out in the, behind the barn at the house. The Lord Christ Jesus offered a sacrifice once for sin. God's paid the price. I must avail myself of His blood, cleanse that sin by the ways indicated. But the offering has already been made. In Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15, we in fact see words that tell us that very idea. But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Notice we're told in that next verse, not with the blood of bulls and goats. By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's what the Lord did. He entered into the holy place with his own blood. That blood needed, according to Hebrews 9.22, for without the shedding of blood is no remission. But he used his own blood, not the blood of an animal, his blood to cleanse your sins and mine. Is it any wonder then in the very next chapter, Hebrews 10 verse 12, this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. You see, the offering was still required, but the Lord did it for you and me. And with that, the curtain closes on the book of 2 Samuel. Having drawn it to a conclusion, perhaps some very brief statements could be made about the totality of this book and the enjoyment that I hope we've each had in being reminded of some of the wonderful scenes in the life of David. After all, David is the central character in terms of the flesh of the book of 2 Samuel. It surrounds his reign, dictates many of the things that took place during his reign. And during the course of that reign, we saw first his ascendancy in the first ten chapters, but then his remarkable fall in chapters 11 and 12. Thou art the man, David. And upon his being told that statement, his family suffered many problems thereafter. And in many ways, so too did he. In our study tonight, we've been reminded of the need to thank and praise God. We've been reminded of the fact that the Spirit of the Lord spake through him and his word was in David's mouth. And finally, in the closing chapter, the need for there to be an offering for sin. Tonight, have you availed yourself of the offering for sin? The appreciation of the whole New Testament surrounds that theme and that idea. That's why the Lord came. That's why the plan of salvation was put in place. That's why the church was established the way it was, so that you and I could be members of a saved family. Are you saved then tonight? Have you had your sins washed away in baptism by the blood of the Lamb? There are three prerequisite ideas to that. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name audibly. At that point, allow yourself to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. If that has taken place in your life, do you remember how wonderful it felt when you rose from that watery grave of baptism as pure and clean as a newborn baby? No sin at all in your life. If you don't feel that way now, maybe you need to come back to that first estate, that first love that you once had. If we could be of any assistance in praying on your behalf, we'd be happy to do it. If either of these things would be the need of your life and heart tonight, wouldn't you let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?